Let me ask you a question. Okay, shoot. How many people have you killed in your lifetime? Including the war? Uh-huh. You lose count. Out of all those times, what, what, what did it feel like? Feel like? Jesus, you're beginning to sound like the prison shrink they send in here twice a week. So it was, it was always just a job to you? Yeah. During the war, after, always a job. Never felt one way or the other about it. Just got good at it. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Stephen King Retrospective. I told you, I don't welch. Listen in as Garrett. I'm a professional. I'm a professional. Matt. I'm not so good today. And Adam. I wish I was out of this. Continue their reviews of the popular author's film adaptations by beginning their look at the film versions of Stephen King's Night Shift. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We gotta watch it. Listen in, as contained in this set are reviews of The Night Shift Collection. Don't do me any favors. And Stephen King's Cat's Eye. We're about to change your life. And keep coming back, as the boys will keep gradually going, one by one, through King's film adaptations in publication order. You've gotta believe me! All coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Are we going to get down to it or not? The Night Shift Collection, featuring The Woman in the Room, directed by Frank Darabont, Boogeyman, directed by Jeff Shero, and Disciples of the Crow, directed by Jeff Woodward. All right, after five weeks of hoity-toity, Leonardo DiCaprio, Martin Scorsese talk, and a legendary duel of terrible takes by my colleague and Michael Ganeri. We have brought Adam Bunch back to talk a little king for the holidays. Garrett Collins here, joined by Mr. Matthew Goudreau. Matt, how you doing, sir? Wow, based on those comments, today's episode of Three Men in a Retrospective has been brought to you by the letters F and U. <laughs> and... Joining us again, it's been a while. He's been gone for over a month, Mr. Adam Bunch. Adam, how are you doing, sir? Yeah, so you boys get to take off, do Marty Scorsese. I come back for this. <laughs> you were you too know, busy I'm... hiding in your closet when we said, let's go talk about Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I appreciate the break. It's been nice, but uh, back in my chair and, and this? Oh, boy. <laughs> All right, let's talk about what we're going to be talking about today. We've gone from... For the next five fucking years. (laughs) Let's go back. So this is the first Stephen King podcast we've done for this site after the Dr. Sleep one, which we actually recorded for Binge and didn't release until we got here. I promised, I was like, I want to do these in publishing order. And when we did Carrie, that was the first book. We did The Shining, which was the third book. And this is the fourth book. Yes, we are getting to Salem's Lot. We have put that off on purpose because James Wan is producing a new version of that next year. So we'll be covering that next year. But Night Shift is a book that was pretty much written out of spite by King. Uh, I shouldn't say written. It was released under spite because he was in a spot where he wanted some more time to do the stand. But he was under contract. His contract had him doing one book a year. And they were pushing for another book, and he was like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to give you all these stories that I did years and years ago for these other magazines, and go ahead, just put this out. And he had one new story, which we're going to talk about today. 
and the Book of Short Stories came out. And Goudreau, you've read Night Shift. How do you feel that book actually turned out? So with any short story collection, some are going to be better than others just based on, A, there's 20 short stories in Night Shift. Most of them are between 10 to 20 pages, so it's good that they're not particularly long. It's kind of an easy read. Like if you're looking for a king book that you can just pick up and put down, not throw across the room like Adam would, uh, this is, I think, one of your, if you're looking for an in for Stephen King, that's not his A-list work like The Shining or It. This would probably be a good start. There are some stories that I think are great. There's some that I think are crap. And there definitely is a correlation between the good short stories making for good movies and vice versa. And Adam, you weren't really familiar with this set of stories. I mean, you know, knew of Maximum Overdrive, correct? We're going to get to that next year. I knew of Maximum Overdrive, yeah. When I heard we were going through and doing Night Shift, I was like, oh, sweet. I totally remember that. A Michael Keaton, Shelley Long movie. And I was really excited that we were going to be going over that. No, no. <laughs> that wasn't it. <laughs> but I've known of some of these that are in the collection just because of knowing some of the filmography really later on. But that's about as familiar as I am with it, really just knowing the titles and knowing the stuff got released. Kind of just poster knowledge. So why have we gone from Scorsese to doing a set of movies that were basically made on the budget of a hostage video? Well, the answer to that is because I wanted to really talk about the concept that King came up with here called the Dollar Baby. What that is, is around the time that Carrie, The Shining was out, his name was getting a lot of traction. And there were filmmakers, one we'll be talking about today, who got in touch with him saying, you know, I would like to do a movie based on this story, but I don't really have any real money to give you or anything. Is there a way we can cut a deal? And what King came up with is a concept of a dollar baby. Basically, for one George Washington note, one dollar, you can have non-exclusive rights to his story, meaning you can put it out at a con, but you cannot release it online. You cannot release it on YouTube. We'll talk about it. That's basically how the three of us watch these three. But it's a non-exclusive right, publishing right. And so that's what he came up with. And they are still making these today. There is a quite amusing trailer for a story called I Know What You Need, which is in this book, done to the tone of a 90s romantic comedy, which if you read that story is totally ironic in a really weird way. And just a couple years ago during the pandemic, a bunch of filmmakers were like, you know what, we think we should do this. We should do a whole festival online of these stories and let's see if King will agree to it. King did agree to it. And that was the first time that he had actually given exclusive rights to these stories for that particular festival. So I think it's a good thing that he does this. It's not like you can really make a name for yourself, although one of these filmmakers really did, but it's a good way of actually toning your craft and actually doing something with a budget. And it shows that King is someone who is not entirely motivated by dollars and cents, largely because the cents and the dollars were probably spent on drugs. <laughs> but that notwithstanding, because King has always been popular as far as adaptations. There's never been in the 40, damn near 50 years since Carrie. There's been periods where it was smaller productions than others. We'll talk about some walls. They can't all be winners, both in the books and in the adaptations. But I like giving the opportunity to people who don't necessarily have the full backing to adapt his work. Because some of these short stories, even in reading them, don't necessitate the biggest budget to begin with. Regardless of if you're a student filmmaker or you're a YouTubist 
or you're just someone who participates in those kind of film festivals. For a dollar, you too can support a sick child. For 50 cents, you too can purchase a D-tier Stephen King story that maybe the hardest of the hardcore are familiar with. And another reason I wanted to do this particular set of movies, it's not just to explain the concept of a dollar baby, it's also to talk about one of the filmmakers whose films we're going to talk about today, which honestly, if, a, if he didn't have one in this series, we probably wouldn't do it. His name is Frank Darabont, and he was the filmmaker I have been circling the drain of since I started talking here. He's the one who talked to King and was like, I would like to do this story, and King saw like a little draft of set of pages that he did on the story, and he said, you know what, we'll go ahead and do this, we'll start the dollar baby. And so I think Darabont was the one who pretty much pre the dollar baby concept because King liked that so much and to this day the woman in the room the first story we're going to be talking about today is King's favorite of the dollar babies so get ready Adam because I mean Darabont did do what you've said is your favorite of King's work the green mile what do you think about that Adam I mean this is where Darabont gets a start I think of anything and I I may have on occasion been a little rough on King (laughs) (laughs) yet but I think this concept, and somebody could be negative and say, oh, it's, it's his way to keep to keep his name out there without any work on his behalf. But the amount of film schools, the amount of artistic schools, and him allowing students, people, to all the way up to, you know, you could be a grandmother, grandfather, still making these kind of films with his permission, him giving you rights for a dollar, really speaks to something. And I think that's an amazing an amazing piece on his behalf. I think it's kind of superb. I would love to be able to take time with a buddy of mine and say, you know what, you love King, let's do a dollar baby just for us. I think there's something special about that. And I think for aspiring filmmakers to be able to take a concept, to use it for a final at USC or something like that, all the way up to these festivals and those kind of things, it is in my opinion, just a really magnanimous part of King to allow that to happen because no one does that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, what, Dolly Parton with her books? <laughs> you know, yeah. that's about it. Yeah. So I got to say, from somebody who King rubs the wrong way, I think it's fantastic on his part. I believe, go back to the Dr. Steve podcast, I believe at one point you called him a piece of shit. So <laughs> <laughs> to say you've been hard on him, it would be putting it quite lightly. But I, I, I do understand what you're saying. And you know what? I went through a phase. I was out in Hollywood doing films at that time. And you know what? If I was even thinking, I would have probably put my dollar in and tried to make one of these as well because it's just it's such a good way of honing your craft and doing something i mean i just watched the fableman just a week ago and seeing that character representing spielberg doing what he was doing and honing his craft and knowing what he would become in the future i really really enjoy the concept of what king started here now adam you weren't really familiar with the concept of dollar baby you heard that we were doing this night shift collection after you got the whole what the fuck out of the way what were you really expecting when we, we you sat down to watch these all in all, I expected, knowing what they were, because I was like, okay, they're simple little experimental type student films, but I know that they at least kind of put them together in a collection, you know, the eight-disc collection or whatever it is. So I'm like, okay, they're going to be of a decent enough quality, maybe a TV episode, something like that. Like, I expected, like, a Tales from the Dark Side episode kind of thought process. That's what I expected I was getting walking into this. My expectations were not very high. Especially when I saw that number one up was Frank Darabont, I was like, oh, well, snap. Then there's got to be some great quality to some of these. But knowing what they were, even a name like that kind of tempered me down a little bit. Yeah, and I remember this video. I re- if you watch, if you see this video, there's a there's a really inter- crazy cover of a beautiful woman emerging from a door, pretty much, in a ghostly figure. And I remember it was like one of those large ass video covers. It always stuck out to me. You go in the horror section, and you know, I was a big King reader as 
people who read who listen to this podcast know. And I would see that I'm like, oh, that is amazing. And every time I went over there, it was out. I could not watch these movies as much as I wanted to. And at that time, you put King's name on something, it will sell. So yeah. I'd always want to see it. I had never seen it until we watched them for this podcast. And so I was really curious to see where Darebond started, how this happened. And this is, again, one of these things. I was a newbie to these movies, which isn't going to be something I want to say too often. The background here, Darabont was 20 years old when he went for this concept. Didn't go to college, but he he had an idea to make this story into a short. He asked King, who consented with his $1, and it actually took Darabont from 1980 to 1983 to get this thing made. And again, like I said, this is King's favorite of the dollar babies to this day, at least of press that he's released in the last, you know, three, four years. I was a bit worried when you said we were going to do this, not just because of completionism, but when I went to every streaming service known to man, I could not find this whatsoever. I saw one of two things. I saw Michael Keaton's face, or it said, do you mean Knight Rider? Do you mean The Dark Knight? It would not correlate. If you want to watch this thing, go on YouTube. There's literally only one link where you can watch at least the first two, and then the third one we're doing is a separate video. And it looks like it's a direct port from a VHS, because it probably was. Yeah, this thing wasn't released on DVD. It was released on video, and they never did a DVD release of it because they were all student films, and nobody really felt the need to do it. So, yeah, one guy, one huge fan took it, and he ripped it for his YouTube channel. And that's that. like I said, I mean, I sent these guys the link. It's just the one link out there for it. And if you want to watch it, it is there. But there's also an option of buying it on Amazon, which I did for $8. So <laughs> I have the VHS because I have to have physical copies of everything we review. All right. So we open in the room of a dying woman and cut to a guy in the bathroom trying to find a set of pills for his mom. And then we cut to him at a hospital, walking around until he's at her bedside. You know, this is Darabont opening this up in a really provocative way, because as you mentioned, Matt, this was the one new story that King had done for this collection. And it should be said, too, King's mom passed away right before the publishing of Carrie. And he took her death really, really hard. And I believe he wrote the story right when he was going through that grief process. And we definitely see that here. We definitely see this guy already feeling guilt. How are you feeling about the opening of this? How, how this thing starts? The most shocking thing was when I saw Frank Darabont's name, because I had no idea he directed this. Because unlike Adam, I don't share the same love that he does. And I think he is almost as closely tied to Stephen King as Mick Garris, where I'm like... Can you do something else, please? Not to say that he hasn't done anything else great outside of Stephen King. We talked about Dream Warriors. Yeah, and to be fair, he also developed The Walking Dead. He was a part of that as well. Speaking of things that um, should have been euthanized long ago. (laughs) uh, I thought this is one of the more melancholy Stephen King stories you'll see. You know, it's a very, very somber, very downtrodden. But I can't say I find this opening all that engaging because of how... And I understand this is largely because of the way that this was made. God damn, these are amateurish. I am no filmmaker, nor am I a student filmmaker. I just watch. But I think the best King adaptations are a lot of the ones where there's a great combination of bringing his words to life while adding a distinct visual stamp that the director can put upon. Here, I don't think either of them work. I don't find a lot of these conversations to be engaging, and I also find the filmmaking, mostly because there's so many static shots, not a lot of crazy camera work. In fact, 
barely any camera work. It was not starting me off on the right note. It should be said that the director of photography is also still working today. He still lights films today. And I think the lighting in this is more than amateurs. I think it's actually very well lit. I can see what you're saying as far as the actual filming itself and the actual filmmaking. But I think of the three we're going to talk about tonight, this is perhaps the more, I dare say professional, but it's the most professional looking as far as I can tell. Adam, what about you, sir? Were you engaged from the beginning here? I wanted to be. I see what they were going for, but melancholy is a great word. There was nothing bringing me and hooking me into it. The character, I didn't care for the way it looked. I was just, I was waiting for something to happen for so long in this first one. I'm like, my first note is, damn, I'm two hours into this, but the timer says it's only been seven (laughs) minutes. It's just, like, I understand it's a short, this is a long feeling short. It's the nature of this one. This isn't a horror from Stephen King by any stretch. Mm-hmm. There's no thrills, there's no scares, it's a drama, which when you look at Darabont's contribution to King on film, kind of fits based on what he's going to do later with Shawshank and with Green Mile. But I can't say that I am brought into this at any point, really. Uh, there's a point that it kind of gets me, but I'm waiting for something to happen. I'm waiting to see what the story is, and it doesn't want me to kind of find out what the hell is going on. But your point is to his mother just passing things like some of that reshapes kind of what I'm seeing and feeling on this in a more positive light. Yeah, it it definitely changes your purview on viewing this critically because this had to be, if nothing else, an exercise in catharsism for Mm -hmm. King. Not necessarily something that I guess if you are in a similar predicament, whether you lose a parent or someone that you love is in this position where you sort of have to weigh, it's, might as well be taking them off life support, sort of in modern medical terms. But Adam's right that this is the interstellar of shorts, where one minute feels like seven. <laughs> We're going to get that in the next story myself. I wasn't feeling it as much as you guys are, but I, I see what you're saying. I think this is the record in the 10 years we've been working together, Garrett, that I kept looking at my watch. Oh, boy. And I was like, oh, fuck, there's another four minutes. Oh, my God. I was the one who wanted to take pills. Watching. Good Lord. This was not as much of a nightmare, no pun intended, Mr. Darabont, as one of the other ones that we're going to get later. So his mom tells him that it's not good for him to be there because it's a bad day for her. And if there is a complaint I have, it's not of the time, as you guys are saying, but what I am brushing up against here is I understand that this was hampered by the budget, but I wish I believed more how bad condition this woman was in. She has a brace, and yeah, there's an air tube, and the actress is really trying, but I'm not buying it. Yeah, you don't know what is going on with her, and that's part of what hampers the story from kind of getting its hooks in me and making me feel engaged with it. Okay, there's somebody in the hospital. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, we're smoking in the hospital room, (laughs) you know? Yeah, right. (laughs) Can't be all that bad. I mean, even back then, you knew that you didn't smoke in the hospital room. So it was just, it was weird. And I understand, oh, you want to hold back, but what are you holding back for? Sure, let us know what's going on so that we're feeling something there. Give us some anguish from the male character as to what he's feeling. With a truncated short, you really need to necessitate giving us as much background. And it's one of the few instances where exposition can be a good tool to use as far as what she's dealing with. A few lines between the two of them would set it up nicely. And that's all it would take. Well, she is a literal woman in the room. She's not feeling anything. She can't process anything. So my question is, why not let her live through it, even if we don't know exactly what it is? As a child, I felt this was the most boring story in the book. I could not get through this. It was really tough to read. As an adult, oh boy, does this hit hard. Yeah. And Matt, you touched on it earlier, but I was going to save it for this particular instant where I have gone through this. And 
It is the toughest thing an adult or child can ever, ever go through in his life. And I was feeling for this guy as I was watching this. And Darabont, yeah, it is melancholy, but Darabont is really hitting me with this stuff where, oh my God. And even reading the story, the story hit me too. There's an instance in this short that is different than the story. We'll talk about it when we get to it. But for the most part, Darabont's pretty loyal to that story. And man, just reading that book for this was really tough for me. So he leaves her room and lets her sleep. He then goes to visit a prisoner on death row. And this stuff here was not in the story. This was added by Darabont himself. And dare I say, I think it does make it better. I love how it is from this conversation that he gets the confirmation to help his mom move slowly to death to get rid of the pain. This guy does seem a little too nice to be on death row. <laughs> Even as he, you know, he's getting a tie to help him look better in court. That's a really funny conversation to me. But I do like this edition by Darabont. Matt, you read the story. Did you like this edition? I was annoyed because I had a proclamation that I thought of and that Frank Darabont must have a prison fetish. <laughs> because you have this, you have the Green Mile, and you have the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. All of these involve the nicest, most benevolent convicts you have <laughs> ever seen. I don't think these guys would kill a fly, let alone another human being. And they didn't need to see this discount Ron Perlman Talking about how nobody comes back from Vietnam crazy unless you were crazy before you got there. Boy, that line eats terribly. This guy does work on Darabont projects to this day. I mean, Darabont did grab them and use them later on. But I see what you're saying. It's definitely not the best point of acting. Adam, as somebody who didn't know the, of the story as you read this, you didn't know this wasn't a part of it. Did you think this adds to it? You know, I have a hard time because I can't see past that they use masking tape to give the prisoner his number <laughs> on his shirt. It's literally a piece of masking tape with, like, you know, just written on with a pen. Um, but I saw what they were going for. And exactly to Matt's point, my note here is I'm like, huh, criminal and lawyer, Darabont, Shawshank feelings is what I had going on right here. I dig it, but I also had no clue the what and why as to where this is tying into anything at this point. Yeah. From what we've seen, we're like, what the hell is this for? But I don't hate it. It really bugs me that sitting there in the chair, this guy, this lawyer at this point, reminds me of watching Walt Flanagan in the original version of Clerks. Fucking <laughs> back in 97, like looking at the eggs to try to find the perfect <laughs> eggs. Oh my God. I could not get it out of my head. I don't hate it. It fits when you look at the end of the story, what's going on. So I do think with it not being in there originally, it's a good addition. I think it was a smart play for him to put it in, but knowing what we're going to be discussing later, it is such a nod to so many Darabont mm. things we're going to be discussing down the road. He asked the prisoner what it feels like to kill somebody as it has always felt like a job and it only meant something once. We hear that he killed a friend of his who had his legs blown off to stop his pain. And this is what makes the main character make the decision that he does. We cut back to him with a cigarette in an ashtray and a set of pills next to him. Some very student film S shots going on here. And like I said, of the three we're talking about, this is the most professional in that the director of photography did go on to do other things. And as somebody who has made films like this, as somebody who has helped on films like this, Adam knows I've helped on a number of films like this. I definitely saw the artistry going on. And I can definitely recognize the artistry. Matt, are you even recognizing any of the artistry or are you just trying to get through it? To quote John Coffee, I'm tired, boss. That's <laughs> only 15 minutes in. I wish I could be more positive that I don't want to be just because I recognize the limitations or the sacrifices you had to make for a dollar baby. I can't see the artistry beyond just King's perspective. 
and knowing that context and trying to remove it is virtually impossible, and I can't really enjoy this as an independent film-going experience, for even for as short as it is. I recognize some of them. They feel like someone trying to show that, that, hey, I can shoot a movie. So from that point, artistic, artistic douchebaggery, whichever way you want to put it, they're the shots that you put in there when you're saying, hey, I can do this, I can edit it in. So it doesn't garner any feel for me other than me going, fuck, can this thing be 20 minutes instead of 30? (laughs) That's just, and I hate to be harping on it, but yeah. Put this thing in a maximum overdrive and let's go. (laughs) So this nightmare sequence of him going to the hospital and just finding his mom's head. This was also added by Darabont to give the audience who rented this tape. He he says he did it because he knew that people wanted a moment to be scared because there's so much melancholy stuff going on here. So he added this just for that effect. He was working on a film set and they just had this head laying around and he took it and he just kind of filmed this scene right on the fly. I'm usually not a fan of jump scares, but this one kind of got me as cheesy as the head looked. I think this worked because it, A, it breaks the monotony, and mm-hmm. B, it's such a drastic tonal shift from what you've been watching. So I think that's key also in implementing jump scares. Your whole movie can't be jump scares, but you also can't really only do a couple. I think it's either do one or all for one, one for all, basically. Yeah, I agree with it. It's effective, being that we're not expecting it. It is such a shift from what we've had going on. So yeah, in that way, it, it works out quite well. Johnny goes back to his mom to give her some comfort as she reveals that she still doesn't feel so good. She moves her right and left hands, and she asks for a drink of water. She reaches in his bag and pulls out a tissue, and she asks for a couple aspirin. He tells her that he brought some pills from home. He tells her to try one, and she does, and then asks for another one. He gives her all of them, and she asks if her legs are together, knowing that she was about to go, and she is asking for a bit of dignity. Oh, my God. This was fucking tough, dude. I gotta say, man, again, as somebody who has gone through this with a parent, it was really tough for me to get through this, and not for the reasons that you guys did. She grabs his hand and drifts to sleep as she tells him that he's always been a good son. He tells her that he loves her and leaves the room as credits roll on Woman in the Room. So, what did you guys feel about the final set of scenes here? I was not expecting it to go this way with what was going on and that there was a woman in the room. I did not think that this was going to be a 30-minute dignity, death, euthanasia story. Mm. Um, it was just, I, I was not aware that that's where it was going. So, at the end of it, it made me kind of rethink it all. And while I did not like it, I could at least appreciate that it was going somewhere that I didn't know it was going to go. Little things in the hospital that do. I mean, the way the pills are done, I don't know. No water. I mean, I'm looking at little things that I'm just like, okay, clean this up, make this a little better. But I do feel from a drama piece, yeah, there's definitely some feels there at the end and something sweet between mother and son. And somebody going through that, this is going to be fucking heart-wrenching. Even for the type of production that this ends up being, there's some feel there. But all in all, that's still what this thing is. So I was expecting a certain amount of either ambiguity as to whether or not he was going to do it or they would cut away at some point. Maybe when she goes into the purse, I thought that they would cut the black right there and not actually show him about to euthanize her. I will say this. I have a critique of Darabont as a filmmaker, even in his best movies. I think it's even applicable here that when he goes for the big dramatic beats, I think he tries too hard. This will be something that I talk about eight years from now when we get to Shawshank and 22 years from now when we get to The Green Mile. It'll literally be The Green Mile to get to that movie. We move on to The Boogeyman. We see a close-up of a door opening as a man emerges and walks down a seemingly unending hallway. And this is a bizarre shot to start this thing off, whereas the first one was kind of, it was kind of melancholy to start things off. This one... 
We're going what? Lynch here? Is that what we're going for? I'm going Kubrick and Shiny. This yeah, that's a good call. Well, to quote Spider-Man, you're going nowhere because that camera stays on that hallway for two goddamn minutes while he takes <laughs> his fucking shoes off. <laughs> We get a Carpenter-type synth score and some credits. Which had me tripped out, because I see the name Conti on the score, and I'm like, holy shit, they got Bill Conti? (laughs) (laughs) I got excited for the second time, unnecessarily. (laughs) That's fantastic. I I paused and looked it up, I was like, oh, oh, wah, wah. (laughs) We have a dolly shot of a bathroom and has a bizarre-looking man washing himself off and opening the curtain to reveal a dead child. He's very distraught as cops arrive, and we cut to a woman telling the man that the girl who was killed was afraid to have her own room. And then we see the cops interview Billings, who says that he put the body in the bed. Now, boys, we had a really melancholy story to start things off here. A big story of euthanasia, of a parent. Now we're getting what you'd expect from King, right, right Adam? Oh, this is such a dramatic reversal of the last movie. It doesn't feel like these two belong together. Yeah. But I think if this was the one I saw first, it would have felt like, okay, yeah, this is what you expect. As you put it, yeah, this is what you would expect. Or I think what most people think of with King. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's nearly as much as that horror thrill that people think of. He's not a slasher writer in that way. But this, I think if you're looking for horror and King together, this is what you would think of. This is also one of the most straightforward type of monster stories that Stephen King has ever written, where it's literally the biggest archetype on the planet of the monster in your closet. Because King will do sort of the big hallmarks of horror, like werewolves. He'll do vampires with Salem's Lot, but going to the literal boogeyman, which had been done around this time. There was a movie called The Boogeyman in the 80s. Yes. It's not great. But the big twist is that he's a killer trapped in a mirror. And they did one in 2005, too. I mean, they, Oh, my God. That yeah. was fucking awful. It was terrible. I saw yeah. that in a theater when I was 12. And I was <laughs> oh like, oh, it was PG-13. My mom actually, she went and take me to our stuff, but she's like, oh, as long as you can handle it. <laughs> and I thought this was fucking Dan Casaletta from The Simpsons. <laughs> and honestly, Dan Casaletta was probably a better actor. Yeah, this guy's bad. He's really bad. We learn that another child had died of crib death. And I remember as a kid hearing about crib death and it freaked me the fuck out, man. You're talking about euthanasia creeping you out based on where I'm at in my life. Oh, this, shit. This, this fucking story got me. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Did they not hire an editor for this story? Because <laughs> your summary is correct up to this point. But there's not a single establishing shot in this entire story. It cuts from the shower to the neighbor coming over, to the guy. The cop is just in the room when they're in the kitchen. Like, you don't see him come in, although you see him come into the crime scene. This one felt the most amateurish, and I don't think it's close. We cut to Billings in a shrinks office, and he says that he's responsible for the deaths of his children because they were murdered by something called the Boogeyman that emerged from the closet. Now, I have to say, this almost, to me, feels like King kind of... He did write this years before his first novel got published. This was in one of those skin mags that would come out back then, a magazine called Cavalier. Does this feel like a precursor to The Shining to you guys? No, I was saying this is a precursor to Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, I'm talking about of King's work, though. I wouldn't say that. I'd say more of it. As far as children in danger and actual child murder, which The Shining does off-screen. Uh-huh. The, the kids die before that movie starts. But actual child death 
being a crux of the story, that's also something Stephen King will do quite a few times by my count. So yeah, I think this is sort of a primer for ideas he would expand on in the future. Billing says that him and his wife were sleeping when he heard his child screaming from his room. He walks in, and after his child tells him that he's scared of his closet, he tries telling him that there's no such thing, and he walks out. He does slip and say, sometimes when it comes to kids, you just want to, and then he stops himself. So we think he could have done this, and it's just making the story up, right? That's kind of what the filmmaker's going for. Yeah, absolutely. They're at least given that. Yeah, he could have done it. Does King have kids? Yes. Right. Yeah, okay. one of them yeah. is a, is we, we a big writer. Oh. We talked about his son earlier this year. Yeah, we talked <laughs> about Black Phone. That was his kid. <laughs> That's right. I can, you know, it's amazing. I have this graphic novel, and because he uses a different name, I never put Hill and King together. Uh, and to be fair, his kid was an infant at the time that the story was written. Yeah, anybody that's gone through it, anybody that's a parent has had those moments when it's two in the morning, it's three in the morning. Well, maybe not three. That's, I get up at three now. It's one in the morning and your infant has blown out a diaper and they're screaming at the top of their lungs. And you literally think you are going to snap. So I do think there's something there about just dealing with that mental state. As Matt said, this is edited fucking with a slap chop, but I think it works in a way that it makes you pretty uneasy. Nothing is clean in this story here whatsoever. He does get the kids to calm down before walking back in and finding the child dead. He says he didn't know it was the boogeyman, but he did see the closet door open with dry cleaning bags. He says he moved his daughter into Denny's room after he died, as he didn't want to overprotect his child by having him sleep with them. But she also screamed boogeyman, and he says that he might have been dreaming. Now, Matt, you weren't captivated at all by the last story. Were you captivated at all by this one? I was, but mostly because I was laughing at how <laughs> it was being told. And I think this is an instance where it's hurt by me having read the story beforehand. Yeah. Granted, the big twist at the end is so blatantly obvious that they... Speaking of movies we talked about earlier this year, Hellraiser 5 has this exact same twist. <laughs> we didn't talk about Hellraiser 5, but we did talk about his filmmaker, huh? Yeah, we talked about the director. Yeah, we talked about Derrickson. And that's also a movie that has some Lynchian dreams. Absolutely, movies. yeah. Now, this movie tries to do, but the best they could do is a fog machine that comes out from underneath <laughs> the door. Adam, Matt says that reading the story hurt his view of this. What about you? You hadn't read the story. Were you wondering what was going to happen here? Well, I'm considerably into this one more than I was the last. Wow. It's got me off balance. I'm kind of uneasy watching it, and, and that way it works. This feels like a message is to, hey, take your medicine, make sure you're taking your pills. So it almost seems like there's a message in there over kind of self-regulating to make sure. I mean, King's gone through so much stuff as well, you know, so not just mm -hmm. the kid, but take your schizophrenic medicine so you're not going off the deep end. So I'm seeing some of that in here as well. But there's some other stuff to take me out. The cops might as well be from a village people music video. <laughs> some of that, you know, when it happens, takes me out. But it's got me just feeling uneasy enough that I'm, I don't know if enjoying is the right word, because this is still, goddamn, this would be so much better at 20 minutes than 30. But it still has me pretty damn uneasy, and I'm enjoying the uneasiness. Meanwhile, the sergeant calls the coroner and questions why they're calling the latest child's death a crib death. We hear noises come from the closet door as Billings approaches it, and he sees Zor. No, I mean, smoke and light emerge from it. <laughs> we cut to him in the shrink's office saying that maybe if you believe something enough, it can become true. He pleads his case about moving the bodies and the noise from the closet door getting to him, and he walks in with a metal pole, so we think, did he kill these kids? But he looks to the closet door, hears a roar, and opens it to only get knocked down and chased down the stairs. We then hear the shrink say that they have a great deal more to talk about as he comforts them, tells them to make another appointment as he leaves, only to come back and find out that the shrink was the boogeyman in the closet the entire time. 
Matt, this was the twist that you saw coming a mile away, huh? Helps when you read the story. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what about you, Adam? I mean, did you know the entire time that this shrink was going to be the boogeyman, or did that catch you off guard? No, not at all. I was expecting him to wake up in a straight jacket or something at one point and not know what was reality or not. Almost like a Jacob's Ladder type of situation. Oh, yeah. I was just about ready to say, kind of like Jacob's Ladder. Yeah. Or he's in the electric chair. Yeah. 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 Good call. So it's not a bad ending, but it's also one where you can substitute it and it would kind of have the same effect. This feels the most like those old EC horror comics. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. He rips his face off. He just watched this with smile. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Haven't seen it yet. But the trailer, so avoid it. Yeah. <laughs> These together make me think that I'm back 11, 12 years old watching Tales from the Dark Side or Tales from the oh, Crypt. Yeah. You know, and I think that there was some retooling. You could take this Night Shift collection and turn it into an anthology series that way and really fucking make it work. He tried that. He wanted to do that. And then the network got really concerned about the ratings board. And so they pulled the plug on it. But he was trying to get it done as an anthology series. And I agree with you. I think that would have been a really good way of doing it instead of 20 some off films that we're going to be covering in this retrospective. I mean, he's had a resurgence lately. They did Uh two seasons of that show, Castle Rock. Yeah. I think nowadays he could probably do it. Fucking Amazon would probably go nuts for something like that. Absolutely, they would. Look what they did with Lord of the Rings. Yeah. They'd sell a new edition of every single fucking book you know, with an Amazon <laughs> cover on it. A lot of them are getting new editions. If you go on Amazon for your Christmas shopping, you can find some pretty decent box sets. Are you giving away what you're giving me for Christmas, Matt? Well, listeners, you have his entire fucking tome already, so why <laughs> you... Listeners, Adam needs a Raiders of the Lost, an Indiana Jones 4K steelbook set. Please. <laughs> <laughs> which will be made redundant because there's a new one coming out. <laughs> That's the only reason I didn't buy it on Black Friday. <laughs> the Shrink says it is only a game as we cut to a massive strobe light. Billings hits the floor and credits roll on The Boogeyman. So we've given our thoughts on that. Let's move on to The Disciples of the Crow, a story that we'll be covering about 12 more times. Because <laughs> this is based the first version of Children of the Corn is what we're going to be discussing right now. Well, can I put on my nerd hat for a second and correct you, sir? Well, actually, this is a take on a very famous movie called Who Can Kill a Child, which, Quien Puede Matar a Un Niño, which is the Spanish title. I say that not just to be an asshole. I say that because it's a Spanish movie. That is the far superior version of any of the Children of the Corn fucking... I can't believe this series, these Children of the Corn movies, is the definition of trying to get blood from a stone. It's like, if at first you don't succeed, fuck up another 11 times. <laughs> like well, the Children of the idea, go check out Who Can Kill a Child, because it's friggin' awesome. I think there are some diamonds in that rough. I, I remember liking a few of those corn movies. We'll get to them. Who doesn't want to see a group of evil schoolkids get shot by <laughs> MP40 outside of mass shooters in America? <laughs> You're going to find the random one or two in the middle of that series, the way that I do with fucking Hellraiser. Yes. yes. <laughs> the way that I champion fucking Hellraiser bloodlines, you're going to find some random shit in Children of the Corn. Yeah, oh. and for the fact that I have not seen all of them, but I'm pretty sure this is one of those cases where I know how it goes. Let's talk about this version, though. We start with a subtitle that says, Jonah, Oklahoma, 1971, and a pan up to a scarecrow, as well as a crow overhead as a child with a birthmark by his mouth does some sort of ritual on an upside-down cross. This is not from the book, by the way. This was completely done for this movie. I, I love how they, how they basically, it's the cover, the crow, 
Uh-huh. It's the cover of the first Dark Tower book before that was ever written. <laughs> Just instead yeah. of the gunslinger, it's a scarecrow. Adam, Matt has let his views known on Throne of the Corn. Uh-huh. <laughs> Coming in, you knew this was the first version of that story, correct? I did, because we discussed it. At this point, are you kind of in, or how are you feeling? You're like, oh, i got to see this 12 more times. I'm actually thinking, okay, I'm at least going to see what this jumping-off point was. I can't believe that we're going to get a series that has more installments than fucking Star Wars based off a short story. <laughs> but I'm I'm going, okay, well, if there's going to be one that's going to be short and concise and maybe has me get some feeling that I'm going to be able to take in when we discuss those later on, it'll be this one. So I was at least, at least like, okay, well, this is going to be a way to go. But then I'm also going, well, why the fuck didn't they include this? In the Night Shift VHS collection, you know, this one was even harder to find. Yeah. And I don't know if I want to say for good reason, but for reasons. Maybe just because Children of the Corn has turned out to be its own franchise. Yeah. Fucking F word. But I was at least going, okay, there's something behind this, being that it spawned what it did. It's just evil children has, that idea has always sold in horror. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that goes back to the bad seed, which came out in the 50s. And that's also something, you know, we talk about these night shift stories being precursors to stuff King would do later. You know, that's a big component of Pet Cemetery, which we're going to talk about. The Boogeyman, we talked about how you were saying that it's a thing for medication. You can call Pet Cemetery Build a Fence, the movie. (laughs) (laughs) All of these books in some way are your ultimate list of things you should not do as a parent. (laughs) And I got no issue with writers, authors taking stuff, especially when they're out in magazines be it Skin Mags, be it Star Law, be it Sci-Fi Magazine, and expanding on them later. I think that's a cool thing that's not done enough nowadays. I'll still buy Heavy Metal Magazine three or four times a year just for that type of thing. Shit, J.R. Martin, G.R. Martin. I mean, that's what he did for a very long Mm -hmm. time because he couldn't get novels to sell. But he sold them short stories and anthology books and sci-fi mags and shit like that. So I think the concept is one that in today's day and age is severely overlooked, unfortunately. We cut to Bones being thrown in a pot of boiling water, and finally the title card. We go inside a church as children are just looking creepy and a uh, ceremony is going on. That's just kids in general. (laughs) (laughs) And again, none of this is from the story. There is a nice dissolve of Jesus turning into some sort of dummy head and all the kids looking behind them at the same time. That was actually a pretty creepy shot to me. I don't know, man. Something about these kids just being in sync like that. That's also straight out of Village of the Damned. Yes. Where they all... Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the original, by the way. Yeah, anyone, I know. Not the Carpenter one. Wants, yeah, if anyone <laughs> wants to watch the John Carpenter one, it's interesting because of the casting, but it's one of Carpenter's worst movies. Absolutely. I, I just love the mood this piece sets. I don't know. I'm more into this one than I was the last one. What about you guys? I think this is the best of the three, and I can't believe I'm saying that. I think it's just because this one of the three is the closest to being just a straight-up horror film mm-hmm. or short story. And part of that is also just, like I said, Evil Kids always works. Outside of the bad remakes, there's always something just unsettling about that idea because we always think of children as incorruptible and innocuous. And that is a, forget Stephen King, that is a pillar of horror. You don't have it on the five-year schedule, but if we ever get to The Omen, I have a lot of things to say about that. We have another evil, quote-unquote, evil kid that we'll be unveiling next year. Oh, that's right. Stay tuned. We'll be announcing that very soon. Very soon. More sacrifices with, what is that bird-looking thing that tilts into the water? That's uh, Penguin's Periscope from the Adam- <laughs> <laughs> 
I half expected torpedoes to come through the cornfield. <laughs> and for a flock of crows to hurl themselves into the path like that porpoise does. We cut to Billy killing his mom with an axe and then cut to him as an adult. By the way, this film's director in adult form here. We see a child running from a crow as we cut to a bickering couple in a car yelling at each other and then hitting a child. And this is right where the story starts. This is where the story starts? With the couple, yeah. Yeah, we don't have oh. the precursor like this movie does here. But oh. the couple is where we start. So the original story starts with, I know what you did last summer. <laughs> Pretty much. Which is exactly what this is. Oh my god, this couple in this bickering, though. <laughs> I was thinking of, you said, uh, you said uh, I know what you did last time. I was thinking of, have you ever seen Jeepers Creepers? Yes. That's the vibe I got. They get out, and he asks Vicky to get his blanket and shotgun as he finds corn in the kid's pocket. And I do love the sound design in this. There's something about the sound design here that really puts me off ease here. Yeah, I mean, of all the things you could find in your kid's pockets, I guess corn is one of the better things. Adam, what about you? Are you uneasy here? I mean, are you, uh, Matt's saying he likes, he thinks this is the best of the three. What are you feeling at this point? For it being extremely low budget, and this one almost feels cheapest in its cost, but the location and its shot, and it, it does ridiculously well for what it has. Knowing that I'm going to go Children of the Corn, I have some anticipatory stuff that I'm just kind of waiting to happen. But yeah, I'm into this quite a bit. I'll say this. We talk about its budget. I filmed in towns like this. You can't go into a town where there's not a person roaming around. They went to a place where I don't see one car. I don't see one other person. They were really able to get this town as empty as they could to film this. And I actually find that very respectable. Yeah. And it's such a good sense of unease, you know. And of, yeah. of, of one thing, at least with that precursor, we had the preamble, the addition, was we saw that there was a town that had adults and had other stuff in it before, the before times. Afterwards, it's like that South Park episode where the kids take over the town and all the adults are gone. <laughs> Matt, that's for you and Christian go through yourself. <laughs> but it, I think that helps to set this off where you just know something is not right going on here. Well, you know it's not right because it's the Stephen King property and religion plays a factor. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. See Carrie. All six times we watched it. <laughs> <laughs> we see him putting the child in his trunk as a rabbit is killed by Billy. Uh, right back to the couple as they're listening to a summon and just still bickering. They see a vomit you out sign as they're continuing to drive past a skeleton made of bones, presumably from their kid's parents, which really, uh, ooh, put me at unease. I mean, it's Stephen King. It's a bag of bones, if you will. <laughs> oh, jeez. Good Robert. We see a girl doing another ritual with corn and the bird tilt thing as Bert and Vicky continue through the town. And Vicky tells him that the town's empty, to which he responds, it just seems that way. So where have you seen somebody, sir? To me, this has a real Texas Chainsaw Massacre feel to it. Matt, would you agree with that? I can't believe you just compared this to the Texas. <laughs> this is Well, it's around the same time. No, I know. But, uh, yeah, I guess the isolation aspect, yes. The location. I didn't compare it favorably. But you also could have compared it to basically all the sequels outside of the second one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They hear kids as they enter a building and see that rabbit stew and corn fritters are on the menu. They are continuing to fight as she talks with Richard Nixon behind her. <laughs> this was so weird. All of a sudden, Richard Nixon's picture shows up here. Vicky bites the knife, which, oh boy, do you know where that knife's been, ma'am? Which is a really weird scene. And Bert once again gets out as he takes the keys so that she can't leave. 
He enters a cornfield church and lights a candle as he sees a ton of remains and kids approach the car and start taking out windows. And this has really built to something fierce. These windows are being taken out. I'm like, holy shit. And being a part of guerrilla filmmaking myself, I, I, I'm like, man, these people really seem to be in trouble. There's, there's even a stunt later on of the guy hanging out of a car. I don't know if it's a dummy or not. But man, this is some pretty, uh, pretty intense stuff, huh, Matt? Yeah, it is, especially when I could go 10 minutes outside of my house on Black Friday and go visit my local Walmart. You see this shit all the time. Yeah, I made for them to emerge, and they're a flock of crows. It's a murder of crows, if you will. It's exactly what it feels like. Bird opens the Bible, which is a ritual of a crow, sees Billy, and walks out to his car getting thrashed. And Vicky turns the key and starts driving away with the stuntman hanging out the car. And the couple get away, and Bert starts asking how people don't know about this town. But an ear of corn is stuck in the radiator, causing the car to overheat. So as... This is the precursor to the banana and the tailpipe. <laughs> <laughs> this ending, it should be said, is not from the book. This is something that the director added, and it's a real ominous thing because we're seeing this car overheat. And we're like, oh, shit, these people are fucked. <laughs> Serious question. Yes, sir. I'm not saying this to be a joke. Wouldn't it just turn into popcorn? It's a great eater. It's a certain kind of ear. I guess it would have been like a shrapnel grenade when it goes off. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of Disciples of the Crow, boys. All right. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you guys rate this set of three stories? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. You know, this is a series that's not easy to find. You can't find it together. you got to get two and one. And... If you're a keen completionist, as I am being forced to be, then you have to see these. <laughs> you know what? Read the book. Get the Night Shift Collection. Read the stories. As somebody who hasn't read them, I'm going to tell you, just read the stories. <laughs> Don't bother with this. Maybe independently, maybe if they were redone in a cool anthology format, but it's a chore to get through all three of these. The first one... The woman in the room was not my cup of tea. I didn't have enough pills around me to get out of that story. The Boogeyman, I enjoyed a little bit more for just the atmosphere and what it was doing. And this last one here, yeah, it's in good atmosphere. I like the outdoor shots. Gave a good sense of dread. But still, you got to remember, these are dollar babies. These are amateurish. And when you get done watching all three of these, you're going to be left with a why did I bother watching it? And that's kind of where I was, too. So I, I can appreciate what they were. I can appreciate what they do down the road for Children of the Corn and for Freak Darabont. But I will never put these up on my screen again. I would like to read them, but I will never watch them again. I'm going to give, you know what? I'm going to give each one a digit. So I'm going to give this a three. Man, can we possibly get worse? Matt, what about you, sir? As you can tell throughout this discussion, I am quite animated and jovial. That's largely because I have two young kids, and I'm all hyped up on caffeine. That is not the environment or the mindset I had watching these movies, except for the second one. The second one I had fun with just because of the borderline ineptitude of the filmmaking. (laughs) I can't say I hated watching this, because when you work with Garrett as long as I have, you have to watch some crap, as you can look through in all the years we've been working together. I feel like I'm fucking Roy from Blade Runner. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And, and I think that's pretty true. That leads me to say, this is something that's ultimately undone by the, the limitations of the Dollar Baby format. I think if these were done a little bit bigger of a budget, maybe some more better actors, because I don't think anybody in these movies are great. 
I wouldn't even cast them to film a Christmas card for my family. The first one's tough because of the subject matter and just the tone. Second one I had a great time with because I was laughing my ass off outside of the parts where I felt like I was having post-parental traumatic stress disorder, watching them talk about crib death and all that stuff. And then the third one, I thought it was pretty enjoyable as a, I don't know, instead of children of the corn, this would be like the embryo of the corn, because it's the gem of that idea that they will beat into the dirt about 12 more times. So when I look at this as a whole, it's tough. Because I didn't really watch this as one thing. I had to watch the first two and the third one just based on how it's set up. And I didn't do it all the way through because I valued my time on this planet. So I'm going to go a slight notch higher than Adam because of sheer entertainment in the second one for the most part and the third one. So I'm going to land on a four on ten. Higher than I was expecting from Goudreau. I got to say, even as a keen completionist, I can't recommend sitting down and watching these three films. I think the reason I really wanted to do this, again, was to talk about the Dollar Baby format, but also talk about the beginnings of a career of a gentleman who we will be discussing a lot in the years we do this retrospective. I think the Arabon story, again, as a child, man, did that story not hit me as an adult. God, did that fucking, it got me pretty hard. That being said, the other two, they have some interesting qualities to them, but none of the filmmakers really went on to do much after that. I think if you want to see the beginnings of a very successful career, I would definitely check this out. But as I said, even if you're a keen completionist, the movie we're going to discuss next week is a better representation of Night Shift than what we discussed today. So that being said, I'm going to go the same as Matt. I'm going to go give it a four. But that is the highest four I can possibly give just because I think the Dollar Baby format is a very respectable format. And I love the fact that King allows these to exist. But like Adam, I'm not sure if I'll sit and watch them again. So that's my thoughts on Stephen King's Night Shift Collection. One down, boys. About 23 more to go. That's it? (laughs) Well, for Night Shift, next week we're going to be talking about a movie that I remember a lot as a child. A movie by the name of Cat's Eye. Now, I don't believe either of you have seen this one, correct? No. Uh-uh. Wow. So what are you guys expecting next week when we get into Cat's Eye? I have lofty expectations, and I don't just say that because one of these stories takes place outside of an apartment complex. But knowing these stories, I'm curious to see how they adapt them, because the Quitters, Inc. one, I think, is one of my favorite in the Night Shift collection. One of them, I think, is fine as a story, and then one I knew was original to the movie. It does not have a comparison point outside of Trilogy of Terror which I've seen. So I'm going into this one with a lot of fun because this is also directed by someone who had done a Stephen King adaptation that we will be covering once Harrison and or Riker go into high school. (laughs) Adam, what about you? As somebody who is the King newbie for the most part, what are you expecting next week when we get into Cat's Eye? I mean, on the bright side, I'm expecting something more professional looking than what we have here. I think that there's a possibility of an anthology format. So what I, from what I understand, there's at least a tie-in to these three together. I'm hopeful. Looking at the cast, there's some names I recognize, and that's kind of cool. One of them, I have no idea that she was involved more with King than I knew already. So I'm, I'm at least hopeful for it. I'm ready, and... I've said before, I think anthology formats are underutilized, and I think they could be a great way to tell stories, look at trick-or-treat. So, yeah, I'm ready for it. I'm hopeful. I remember just watching the hell out of this tape as a child, and uh, I really can't wait to discuss it because I remember this having a different feel than the majority of King works adaptations and uh, it will be another King script that we've discussed and it went so well the first time we discussed him writing The Shining, right guys? 
<laughs> well, it went well for Adam. Me, not <laughs> Definitely True. tune in next week because not only will we discuss Cat's Eye, we're also going to discuss the next retrospectives we're going to be doing the week after Cat's Eye. And for those not looking for shows about big Scorsese movies or little <laughs> King adaptations, I believe those looking for blockbuster films are going to be satisfied. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, we're also dealing with someone who also has a Stephen King-sized ego. <laughs> You're definitely right about that. So to hear that announcement, come back next week. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for going through these with me, as painful as it seemed to be for you guys. <laughs> Certainly it has been fun for me. I really enjoy going through these. But until next week, when we discuss Cat's Eye, I certainly never realized that Polly had such a big podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. I promise you three things. You have your car clean, you have the money, and of course, you have my wife. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. I think I'm crying. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Maybe I'll be better tomorrow. And if you'd like to hear the boys talk about the film adaptations of Carrie and The Shining, please head over to www.bingemedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. Oh, sure. Sure, I remember. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett... Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Does a bear shit in the woods? <laughs> Edited by Garrett. Oh, that's bullshit. Voiceover by Adam. We'll make some time, goddammit. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. You think it's going to make a difference? The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Quitters Incorporated. Quitters Incorporated. Quitters Incorporated. Quitters Incorporated. We have a great deal to talk about, Mr. Billings. Come back tomorrow and we'll talk some more. Baby, the pizza's here. Jen! Hold on a second, guys. This episode of Things Have the Retrospective has been brought to you by Papa John's. Papa John's. When you need a racist asshole to sponsor your pizza, Papa John's. <laughs> but Little Caesars. 
expect disappointment and you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> Also brought to you by the Reno Airport. Yeah, well, did you order? Did you? Did, did they fly Maver- over? Yeah, did Maverick go deliver your pizza? Uh, wait till he edits this. Here's all the shit. I don't know. What other shameless plugs can we do? <laughs> hey, don't just give them the tip, give them the whole thing. Okay, I'm so sorry, guys. He sorry tips his delivery driver four times out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> okay, where were we? Um, uh, we were giving shameless product placement while you were... <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so... Let's see here. Let's, um... 65-yard field goal? Holy shit. <laughs> Alright, let's, uh... What, what, what exactly was I talking about before that happened? Oh, I was seeing it in the video store. So yep. I'd always want to see it. I had never seen it until... Uh, Matt, do you have anything to say before we get into this? What's a video rental store? <laughs> Fuck off. It's where Jared spent many years working. <laughs> uh, three years. Yeah, three years yeah, of my life. I was going to say that I 